Today we have a very special edition of the Artist Journal live podcast with Sabato and Xerox, and we are going to ask the big questions on what is going on with Keith Haring, Christie's, and the NFTs. Is something up? Have things gone amok? We're going to find out. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I welcome you to today's Special edition Artist Journal, September 11th, 2023, broadcasting live from Berlin, somewhere in Massachusetts and Toronto. Welcome, everyone, and hello to Xerox and Sabato. How are you guys doing? Morning. Hello, hello, Sabato. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a real Especially on such a short notice, too. Well, you know, I'm just broadcasting like 24 hours a day over here. So I just, uh, you know, I might as well do the dishes uh, at this point. I'm I'm joking. Uh, It's kind of crazy, but I love it. I love it, actually. Uh, And it's a beautiful day out here. How's the weather where you guys are? Sabato, you're in in Massachusetts, right? Yes, I am. I'm in Western Mass. Um, is, is, it's sunny today, actually. We're expecting like a rainy week because I think we got we're gonna have like a hurricane, mm-hmm. like remnants of a hurricane swing by our our region. But so far, it's been pleasant. Amazing, a hurricane all the way up there. But I guess they do sometimes. <laughs> uh, they do sometimes. I remember in Montreal and Quebec, sometimes they would really, yeah, they hit pretty hard all the way up there. Uh, Xerox, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there isn't a cloud in the sky, but somehow it's uh, it's overcast. I can't explain it. Um, yeah, that sounds like where does that that sounds almost like Berlin, but not today. Today it is a gorgeous day. It, is, it must be 30 degrees here Celsius, and it is just beautiful out. So it is good to be up, and it is good to be talking. So welcome everybody. So tell us, uh, you know, there's. It seems like I was really impressed by all the. Uh, all the information, really, you guys had on this thing. I don't know who wants to start. Uh, I mean, maybe Xerox. We start with you. I mean, I was surprised to see, like, I saw Sabato minted an NFT today of this Keith Herring uh, work, and that you had actually written uh, a, a PDF, as it escapes my screen here, on, what is it called here? Uh, here we go. A PDF on... No way these Keith Herrings are real. So what is going on? What got you guys interested? Uh, Xerox, start with you. Like, what is going on with this whole Keith Herring NFT deal? Yeah, I mean, this this story started, I mean, September 5th, I think it was, where the news dropped and it was like a, it was like a big, loud uh, release because, you know, it's Christie's, you know, probably the biggest auction house now when it comes to uh, fine art and NFTs. Um and then there was a quite a few. I, I think maybe they they had obviously pre-planned press so that there were m- multiple articles all released at once. And so you know when that happens, typically the information that the press receives is that which you know Christie's obviously supplies. So all the articles were virtually identical, with a few exceptions where some people you know went into a little bit of the backstory. And so when we saw, I, I mean. 
Sabato and I and quite a few um, others, you know, there's uh, Spogel Sass McKinnon, uh, Strano in the audience and a few others were in a group. And so we shared it among ourselves. And I think the, the one thing that kind of popped out at us initially was like the name of the auction is Pixel Pioneer. Right. So it's Keith Herring Pixel Pioneer. And people, everyone knows who Keith Herring is. And, you know, he's a subject of a great deal of admiration. And I happen to like, you know, Keith's work quite a bit. And his sort of influence is undeniable uh, in the pop art uh, scene. And um, yeah, so, you know, the, the Pixel Pioneer was just like, what, really? Like, there are quite a few people, in, you know, um, in terms of computer art or digital art or you know electronic art or what have you going back decades um that were you know probably considered pioneers of of the digital realm and keith herring isn't one of them so that title was a little unusual and then we watched there was a video that was associated with it and there was the story and the story kind of was interesting enough at least for myself to look into now sabato has a deep and intimate relationship with commodore amiga so there's different reasons i'm sure that sabato was interested in the story but that's sort of where it, where it started it was like this headline is off there's something wrong with this headline and then you know once you look into the story and i everyone like you know i invite you guys all to kind of google this this thing this keith herring pixel pioneer thing the story always starts off the same way which is there was this party it was sean lennon which is john lennon's son's party he was nine years old uh, and it's like a really exciting story because it's like Steve Jobs shows up with a with a Macintosh, pl- places it on a table, and Keith Haring and Andy Warhol and Yoko Ono and everyone's there and they all crowd around this like computer and like, you know, the story is just like a magical story and Keith Haring's light like like eyes like lit up, and he just understood the endless possibilities of computers. So, like, that's the story, except, like, once you look into it, and as Sabato, I think you could maybe speak to this, is, like, at least as far as Keith Haring goes, his exposure to computers and using computers to create things predates that that day of, you know, the, the birthday party, right? It's like, there was there's more to it than, than that. So, I mean, immediately, I'm just trying to get to the fact that there is framing of a story, a framing of what this artist was, a pioneer in digital work. And there's enough of that framing going on where you start questioning other aspects of what's going on. You're like, well, you know, if the title is off and the story, the beginning of the story is off, like where, what else is off? Fascinating. So, in a, so you're kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, your BS detector started going off a little bit. And all of a sudden you're kind of like, something doesn't feel right about what's kind of being kind of sent my way here. Exactly. We got 100%. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> so, Bob, if you want to talk yeah. about a little bit about what you kind of figured out when it comes to, you know, uh, Keith Haring and his, you know, what he's what he's done and the relationship with Andy, maybe. I don't know. I know there's quite a bit. Yeah. Because, um, like, this whole, um, this whole Christie story kind of really brought you know, it kind of brought us all into like research mode. And one of the things I did was I like managed to find Keith Haring's journals, at least the published journals. Um, and I kind of perused through that because, you know, there's a lot of questions of like, um, you know, when did he get the computer? Like, how did he get an Amiga? Um, 
And one of the things I found from just kind of perusing his journals and looking through his journals was that he had worked with computers before that party with Sean Lennon. Um, he worked with uh, kind of like a video drawing interface in NYU in, in 1980. And he worked on a computer in 1983 when he went to Japan for his like first solo exhibition there. And it's interesting because this this whole like, you know, just talking about the, the story behind Keith Haring's pixel art. But also we also came up with Andy Warhol's pixel art, which a few years ago was auctioned off by Christie's for like a lot of money. And it was interesting because the Warhol pixel art generated some controversy with digital art, cons people who conserve digital art, because what was auctioned off by Christie was kind of like a high res reproduction of the original files that Warhol made. Um, and so people were questioning kind of like, what are the ethics of that? Is that an exhibition copy? Is that a forgery? Like, can you do that? Because a lot of times these files are, you know, they're very small. Like on a, an Amiga, the, the default kind of like dimensions is 300 by, or 320 by 240, or 320 by 200 in the case of Keith Haring's images. Um, so we're working with like very small images that also are in file formats that aren't usable. Um, and one of the interesting things is just kind of looking at the process for remastering and recovering Warhol's works is that um, that work was kind of was done by Corey Archangel and the, the computer lab at Carnegie Mellon. And they made a whole documentary about it. It's a wonderful documentary. But Corey Archangel mentions that reading through Andy Warhol's journals, that Warhol was jealous that Keith was messing around with computers um, mm -hmm. and using them to print T-shirts and to do kind of like small or, you know, just kind of like early digital production things. Um, and that's why he got involved with the Amiga. Um, it said that, like, during that party with, uh, with, with Sean Lennon, that a lot of the artists, like, enjoyed the Mac paint, but they were unimpressed that it was only a grayscale monitor. So I think that's kind of what pushed them towards the Amiga as opposed to, like, Steve Jobs' computer is because they wanted to work with, with colors. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It was kind of like a whole, like, you know, turnaround because at first we were like, well, did, did Keith Haring, like, do pixel art? No one really knows him as a digital artist. Everyone knows him as a graffiti and illustrator, like, as a graffiti artist or illustrator or painter. Um, but he did. He did mess around with it. You know, he had, he, he messed with it in the 80s and 83. He also did a kind of like a, a public um, video graphics installation in New York City in 1982. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe he kind of was a pioneer. Well, I mean... You really uh, surprised me by what you said about what was it Christie's you said that worked with the Warhols and then made higher resolution versions. Yeah, that was a, a controversy with the with the Warhol auctions was that originally they listed images that were like six thousand pixels wide by forty five hundred pixels high, high um, as opposed to the original, you know, three hundred by two hundred. Um, size pixel and this is something I think they corrected after there was like kind of like controversy about it I think they did sort of include the originals file sizes with the with the auction but um, it, it does show a bit of a checkered past though I mean doesn't it I mean because what were they doing in the first place I mean in Christie's of all places and you know I'm not out to you know 
malign Christie's, but I mean, the fact that they would even think that that might be a good idea is actually quite shocking to me. Like, well, you know, the guys that did this, the guys that actually like retrieved the the file from the disc, right? So there's a whole to 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 get that file, those files, the Andy Warhol files, off of that original disc was a considerably more difficult feat than what was experienced this time around because the files the files were on a disc that was period that means it was there were the original discs uh they were in a file format that was unrecognizable because the software that andy warhol and keith herring received was pre-release and it no one else had it the general public didn't have it i mean they were noteworthy famous people for all intents and purposes and they were given access to let's call it a demo version um because you know they like it was in everyone's interest to have them use the program right it's a promotional idea and you know andy warhol famously actually demonstrated the use of the amiga you know when it was first unveiled and and there was that you know the lead singer for blondie or something was was there and so what i'm getting at is that the file format was not a common file format and they had to really kind of engineer a solution for it if you will and they didn't really know what they were looking for and, and you know they converted it and so what came out of it the high resolution images were really meant to be used for magazines and billboards and stuff like that to promote you know this big auction and um they just decided you know what we'll just mint them this way and the issue with with upscaling is sometimes it also produces things like artifacts or color changes even you know changing for, formats of of a file can can effectively do that but one thing that they did and you know this is something that we were talking a lot about was that when they changed the um the scale from i think it was it's 320 200 was the original scale if i'm not mistaken but when they changed it they upcycled it they also changed the, the aspect ratio so the, the aspect ratio is like for those people that don't know it's kind of like the shape of a work in terms of the dimensions and what they did is they made it more square so it was rectangular originally which is what everyone if you guys look at the current auction you'll see all these pieces are like these elongated almost widescreen looking rectangles so they took it from that and they made it more square and the reason why they made it more square is it's kind of like i just bear with me for a second but when Andy Warhol and Keith Haring were making these pieces on the Commodore. The Commodore's screen is more square. It's a 4-3 aspect. And what happens with those devices is that what you're working on in the computer digital level is translated and stretched so that when Andy Warhol was looking at the piece that he was making or Keith Haring, they were working on a more square piece. And when they press save, they save the more square piece. So in there, so if, you know, Chris, if Keith Haring was alive and he saw the piece, I think one of the first things, and if it was real, the first things that would come to mind was, hey, like, I thought I made a square piece. Why is it rectangular? So like the, the technology, CRT technology imparts very specific qualities onto the image. And one of them is the aspect ratio, right? There, there are others that we can talk about later, but I want to just bring that to, you know, to bring that up is that you know that was one thing that they did and it's one thing that Christie's didn't do because there was also black backlash on that it's like how dare you change 
the digitally stored file to make it look as though it would have looked. So there's a there's a lot of like debate over what to do, what not to do. Well, and one thing is to like extract the file. Okay, we have the file. This is the best we're going to do it. There's going to be some interpretation there. In a sense, totally understandable. Where it really becomes a bridge too far, at least in my own mind, and I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say is, okay, and now we're going to mint this piece. And under whose, you know, like, and who mints it? Like, was it, I guess it was the Keith Haring Foundation? And, you know, so there's something kind of, and, you know, it's easy to, you know, take a, the negative view and everything, but it, there is something kind of like, let's cash in on this, sell it as an NFT. Uh, like there's something inauthentic, I guess, is really what I'm getting at on this whole process. I mean, which is what you guys seem to be highlighting. Does that resonate with you? Do you guys feel that way? I would say so. Um, I think that's kind of like, um, what attracted both of us to the to, to kind of like work on you know make a work based on this on on Keith Haring's drawings um, but then I mean for me and I can speak for myself like I see digital art as kind of being you know you're already in the realm of inauthenticity um, because works are always copied you know we have we live um, kind of like in a different sort of image economy than the traditional art world where rarity means something is copied more or something is memified or, you know, plagiarized or turned into different derivatives. Um, so I think like, I really just wanted to question this idea. Like, what does it mean to like create a forgery right now? Like, is it possible to even create a forgery of something like Keith Haring's pixel artworks? Um, given that, you know, like I can, redraw it by hand um and mint it but it won't necessarily like affect the reality of whatever christie's doing you know if, if anything it'll just generate a little more press for them because you have other artists kind of like doing these conceptual works about it so yeah i think i think that's like the dynamic we definitely wanted to kind of just play with and explore because things are different now just in terms of just how images are trafficked and it, you know it's it it is interesting. Sorry to sorry to interrupt. Uh, it it is interesting, like what you bring up here, because you made your work this morning of the uh, you know Keith Haring forgery, and to your point, like you interpreting that work and whoever you know took the computer and put the old you know got the files out and somehow wrestled this file from you know this image from this file. In some respects, it's like, well, Keith Haring didn't do, you know, the what you did and, and or what the person in a sense, like, I think maybe and tell me if this is the point you're making in the work. Like, it seems like there's nothing more authentic about what they did in a sense, maybe slightly more authentic than what you did. I mean, they're both interpretations in a certain sort of way. Decisions were made after the fact of what to do with that artwork. No, I mean, like, I'll be honest with you, nope. I was waiting, it's 20 minutes now, right? So I was waiting to, like, not dish out, like, right out the gate, because, like, it, the story gets way, way, way worse than, like, what we decided. With. Okay, like, well, go, we, go, go, go. We've been, yeah, like, feel we've free been to discussing, take it. like, technical, we've been discussing, like, technical aspects of this, like, oh, like, they, they're bad, you know, bad people for, like, 
you know, oh no, I, I don't want to. I don't want to malign. Uh, I'm not out to malign anyone, but I mean, it does seem like I, I'm just sort of calling it as I see it. And oh, I, I'm no, not. What I'm saying is yeah. that it's like like these things are bad. Don't get me wrong. Like modifying. Well, it's not. They're not that they're, they're bad. It's that, like ultimately, like framing up a story, you know, somewhat incorrectly, and you know, attributing qualities to an artist that necessarily aren't necessarily true. And like doing all this is like kind of like let's call it the part of a business, right? We're trying to sell stuff, right? And that's sort of what's going on with Christie's. You have to keep in mind that that first Andy Warhol sale that we talked about, there were five um, pieces that sold collectively for three point three eight million dollars. Okay, that's that's a sizable carrot for the Andy Warhol Foundation and estate to essentially obtain. Um, that's enough to get every dead artist to, you know, come back to life from, from the past to try and get their estates minting shit. Okay. And that's sort of what this story is really the juice of this story is, is right in that subject is, and you know, um, Keith Haring passed away in 1990. All right. And if anybody here goes to the Christie's official website, you would be scratching your head because right there on the site, it says the discs that they found at the, you know, the New York library are dated 1994. So the discs originate from a date subsequent to Keith Haring's death. Okay, that's, that's one massive red flag, okay? The discs are formatted Macintosh, not Amiga. So they're a different file type for a totally different, you know, operating system, okay? Another huge fucking red flag, right? There's no indication whatsoever. There's no it, no data of how, you know, um, what's it called? Um, I can't remember his name now. Timothy Leary, who's the person who donated this disc this, this with all sorts of other files is, is the state donated to the library. How the hell did he come into possession of original Andy Warhols? Like, there is a story which is actually is again a problem that isn't mentioned, you know, um, at least not formally by uh, Christie's, but it is mentioned extensively now. People are talking about Outland released an article today saying that well, Timothy Leary, who is like a psychedelics user and a, psych- a psychologist, he basically struck struck a deal with Andy Warhol, uh, with Keith Haring and Andy Warhol, to basically create graphics and images to use in a in a game various games. In Keith Haring's case, it was Neuromancer, a recreated a recreation of a Neuromancer game, right? So, and within that agreement, uh, Timothy Leary has in the agreement saying that his company can digitize Keith Haring's work. So, Timothy Leary has permission to have his team create Keith Haring's, digital Keith Haring's, right? And that's in the blog from the New York library so there's a lot of there's a lot of fucking issues that could potentially be problematic so you gotta we gotta sit here and say okay well what what do we have that suggests that you know keith herring made this piece and there is a reasonable number of things well we know that he was gifted a, a amiga 1000 before the works were created you know we know that he was alive during the time that you know they were allegedly created we knew that he could potentially use a computer. Andy Warhol said he was jealous of them for using computers. Like there's a lot there, 
but what I'm getting at is the story is spun. The files aren't original. And right there on the Christie's website, it says that the files are either lost or destroyed. We don't know where they are. What we have is a disc that wasn't in Keith Haring's possession. No one, there's no formal record of, of anyone buying it. And now it's in, you know, Timothy uh, Leary's um, estate. And we're just going to say that this shit is real. Which, again, like, the problem isn't any of this for me. The problem is, like, all these articles keep talking about their, like, Christie's is heralding in a whole new era of authenticating NFTs. This shit, just because you mint something doesn't mean that it's authenticated. doesn't mean that it's real. And then the last thing I'll just mention, which is, like, the last thing I think before I shut up for a while, probably come back in a few minutes with my rants. But, uh, you know, please do, please do. Like on on the again, the Christie's website, if you look at the lot and you look at provenance, it's the Keith Haring Foundation. They're supplying the, the provenance and it says exhibited mm. and under the exhibited, it states the library for something that was previously not seen by anyone. It's unusual that it was exhibited because it wasn't exhibited. So. Like they could, I don't think they have provenance, so they put themselves under the provenance. And the issue with putting yourself under the provenance is Keith Haring Foundation, the Andy Warhol Foundation, Basquiat's Foundation, all of these guys disbanded and dismantled their authentication um, departments in the early 90s. Okay, or in some cases, uh, the early 2010s, right? Like depending on who, and that's weird. So like these are like the people that are authenticating it don't have an authentication department anymore, right? And you have to ask yourself, well, why don't they have an authentication department? And the reason is they kept getting sued. All these foundations kept getting sued. Andy Warhol, I think their foundation lost like seven million dollars in legal fees that they had to incur because if you want to get something authenticated at least prior to them dissolving these things, you'd have to go up to the foundation and say, listen, I have a Basquiat. I know it's a Basquiat. Here's a picture of Basquiat holding it with a fucking newspaper. Here's the date of the newspaper on, you know, 19 whatever, right? And they could just say, no, no, it's not. Fuck off. Like, and in some cases, some of these people had genuine pieces and the foundations weren't authenticating. At least that's what the, you know, some of these lawsuits claim. And the reason why they wouldn't authenticate it, it, and again, this is based on the records that, that you know, if you read, it's just hilarious, is because the claim is that they're trying to limit the supply because they don't want an extra, an extra 100 Andy Warhols or whatever necessarily coming into the market every year because all of them would have to go under the hammer. And it's really hard to sell that many Andes or that many Keith Tarings for hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars repeatedly. So, that, so there's like a whole hilarious, like, you know, um, rabbit hole of like hilarity that's involved in this one. It brings up this issue again, though, like who can mint a work? Like, because to your point, and I think Sabato was kind of, you know, pointing at this too with the copies, like just because you have a copy of something on a disc doesn't mean anything in a certain sort of way. Like I'm kind of back to this idea and you guys tell me what you think and then we can get back to the, details in the story but can whoever like is it like uh you know is it authentic if uh someone who is not the artist mints a work i think it's a good question and it's interesting because it's something we're at an age where 
where like everything is so simulated and so kind of like I don't know conjured from nothing um, that I think that you know for for the just purposes of of minting and selling it doesn't you know the, the exact provenance doesn't matter as much as the the sanction given by the foundations you know so if, so if the herring foundation says that this is an authentic you know Keith Herring pixel art than it is right like it doesn't matter if it was found years later kind of posthumously in someone else's archives um and i think this isn't just you know something that goes with art it's it goes with music and i think any sort of digital media like young thug recently released an album maybe like last month and it's a new album by him but it's funny because you know if you're following young, young thug's trajectory he's in he's in prison right now for rico charges in atlanta so it's like he can't really record a new album but metro boom and his one of the producers he works with just like got old kind of just like stuff he had laying around and put together a new album like i think from that album there's maybe like one clip of young thug that was recently made right we could tell if you listen to it there's like a kind of like a voice clip where they recorded him through the you know the prison phones but you know looking at at that for example it's like well it's is it an authentic like prison album i mean not yes and no because a lot of the material was produced beforehand um and i think the same thing with the keith herring thing is it like the question of is this an authentic keith herring is like you know it's definitely a question like you know i'm perusing through his journals like obviously his published journals um i'm sure he wrote things that weren't published that i haven't seen so i might be totally wrong um but he doesn't really talk about he talks about meeting tim leary he talks about wanting to do computer drawings for tim leary's project but i haven't really found him talking about the drawings after the fact like he does talk about like in 1989 how he went to rome to work with the quantel paint box and he talks about that he mentions that work pretty often so you know there's there's a lot of questions and um one one question that zero arcs brought in which was something that i think like both our our little projects touched on was you know the use of the gradient in the image that we both kind of focused on, Untitled Number One, um, because Zero—I mean, Xerox is the one who who pointed it out. But um, you know, that gradient is is really unique to Keith Haring. Like he doesn't really use fills for his figures um, at all. Like he usually uses kind of very flat lines, very like you know, very like few colors. Um, so it's interesting to see that. And in recreating, like you could tell that it's like, well, you know he was using this program, but he didn't like really move around like the color tables, right? He's playing around with default colors. Um, so for him to put this gradient together, like in a sense, like if I understand you, right? Like, it seems like that, yeah, maybe he would have done that if he'd been working for a couple of years, right? No, or, no, no, like no, no, no. Six, it's, it's, it's stylistically, months. no, it, it's stylistically atypical. Keith Haring. That's never, what I'm saying. Like, uh, no, no, he would never like just like if based on his other work, and he's got thou like thousands really between the murals, t-shirts, whatever. He never used gradients and or or did shading. It's always flat, like like fill. So like it's it's not in his style. Is what I, I, like maybe if it could be real, it could be this is the first time he's ever done that, and that the software somehow brought it out of him, but like. It's it doesn't fit with the rest of the the like again like if you go back and look at the Keith Haring and if anybody here searched like Keith Haring TV there's there are quite a few of the Keith Haring TVs and there's quite a few listed on the official um, 
sort of let's call it repository of of the artists on on the Keith Haring Foundation. None of them, nothing even outside of the TVs, any form, none of them have gradients. So it's it's a it's it's unusual. Let's put it that way. And like if it's if it's one that's completely a different style, and if it was real, people should be saying, "Well, look, this is the first use of a gradient ever by by this artist." Right. So that's kind of where I was going with it, though, in the sense, like maybe from a different angle, in the sense that the gradient wasn't the obvious thing. It, as you're saying, it's not typical of his style, but it's not totally implausible that he might use one as the software sort of calls for it. But what you're basically saying is there's kind of an unlikelihood to it, or it's let's just call it unusual. Would, would that be fair? I think it's, def- it's definitely unusual. Um, I think that's the charm of it. Do you kind of like? Do you think he? It's almost like a non-canonical work do you, that's kind of like entering the canon. Do you think he did it, Sabato? Um, I mean, I I think it's likely that he did, just based on the fact that he was into making computer drawings. So I I, I think it's likely, but I, I think it's plausible that he didn't do it as well. Like. Um, the fact that the original files are are non-existent and Christie admits to kind of like, well, we don't actually have any of Herring's original Amiga works. And if they show up, you know, we'll gladly add them to the contract, to like the minted contract. Um, I think they kind of designed it so that they can upload at least like the, the source file kind of data to the, you know, to the contract, which is interesting. Like it's, I, I you know, it's, it's, the whole thing is just really interesting to me. Um, yeah, like, I, you know, like, I can understand if they find the file and they say, hey, we found a Keith Haring, we've basically, we've wrestled it out of this old technology, and here it is. The, I guess the problem I have is I'm kind of back to this, if they, well, why are they minting it? Like, I, like, obviously for money, it seems to me, and it just seems like, you know, I was like, I, I had a, this, I was looking on Artsy, I think, at a show a few weeks ago, and there's Magritte, and they have like, you know, what look like signed Magritte's, but they're from 2010. So it's almost like part of this, you know, shall we say, culture of estates, shall we say, or of these foundations, where they are seemingly trying to cash in. And it's almost like there's enough of an audience out there that kind of wants to believe it to be true. To you know, oh, I have a Keith Haring to, or I have a Magritte that you know that there's almost enough of a market out there that in a weird way they can kind of get away with it. But when you kind of step back, it doesn't feel quite right. So that's one aspect. It's kind of like it seems kind of inauthentic in the you know the quote unquote minting of it, so to speak. The artists themselves did not mint this piece and didn't you know, for example. And then there's the whole your qual you know you guys are calling into question the works themselves like potentially there could be something there as well which would be a whole other level of dodginess should that be the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so okay, so quick question then on you did a lot of research on this Sabato as far as kind of like scholarship and looking at the journals. Uh, I have this kind of like concept proof of party. So this party with Sean Lennon and everything like, do we actually have proof that it happened? Yeah, there's photos. 
And I think there's a photo even of Keith Haring doodling on a Mac Paint Pro. Um, I feel like Xerox might be able to speak better to the party. Because I feel that was information that he, like, kind of uncovered. Yeah, I, I mean, it, the party happened. And there's quite a few pictures of... of and I, hilariously, in the party, like, there's a picture of the nine-year-old Sean Lennon drawing a Keith Haring on, on a computer, which is really funny. So, like... Um, you know that is funny. Like, <laughs> red flag that's actually how i started my pdf that i made but uh you know i just touching quickly on what you said it's like in this case just because you know where you you, you touched on it yeah the found, foundation essentially has minted this thing and they are taking a, a perpetual royalty on it as well like it's and there's a ton of usage rights that are customized to this these pieces so where you can use it how you can use it how you're not allowed to use it you know, the, you know, can you put it on a t-shirt? Can you not put it on a t-shirt? You know, can you use it as a PFB or not? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very like, like specific, let's put it contract of, of how you're able to use these pieces that you're, you're, you're buying. Um, and this idea of like basically dead artists dropping new work uh, is, it, it, it's something that we've been talking about and sort of like in amusement because, you know, like in Basquiat, for example, there was like, there, people are calling them collaborations, like, but like Basquiat collaborate with like Tiffany's or whatever. And like, essentially what, what it is, is like various brands, they license um, use of the artist's name and images and they sell products. Like, you know, you could sell, I'm sure if you threw enough money at it, you could sell, you could sell like Basquiat hot dogs at a hot dog stand. You know what I mean? So the name is, is up for grabs. Uh, and the name is worth something, right? And, uh, you know, the discussion started because, you know, a friend of mine approached me and, and said, hey, by the way, there's an opportunity I have for you to work with this artist. And I was like, oh, my God, like, they're alive? <laughs> and he's like, no, like, they died like 50 years ago. And I was like, oh, well, how the hell am I going to collaborate with a, a dead person? Like, they're they're not here, like. And I know like, oh, it's and I'm like, well, you mean like a post ominous like tribute? No, I know it's a collaboration. I'm like, man, they're dead. Like they're not living. Like I can't, you can't collaborate with dead people. It's not, it's not an option. You know what I mean? Like if I, if I went and bought like a Babe Ruth, like baseball bat and I, I took, I play, I use it for baseball. doesn't mean I fucking collaborate with Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth. Like just because like some estate of Babe Ruth told me that I could take a picture whatever it is, you know, it's like, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> To your point, a name is worth a lot. And it seems like, you know, again, back to these estates, it seems like, and you know, and I, again, I'm not a, to malign, but it, it just seems like clearly this is about money. And whenever people are trying to do this, whether it's the Magritte estate or, or foundation or whatever it is, or the Keith Haring or the Andy Warhol, like to me, it again brings up this kind of philosophical issue of, because put it this way. I mean, you can ask yourself as an artist, do you want your uh inheritors or whomever to be able to mint art you know and call it yours and my instinct would be no you know like and it's kind of like you don't know who these people are going to be you may never have even met these people and now these people who might not know anything frankly about art or care are all just trying to you know buy a nicer house with your name that they've you know somehow had the fortune of running into and being a part of you know so the whole thing I mean, it kind of brings to me this, this issue up of authorship. And if 
we're going to say that foundations can do this and that the Magritte Foundation can make new Magritte's, well, it's kind of all out the window because, or then we need a new word for the real thing. You know, uh, what a real Magritte is or what a real Keith Haring is. You know, so this whole idea that the artist isn't minting it, to me, that's the only thing we have. I mean, what do you guys think about that? I have a question. I have a couple of questions about this. Um, do you think the price realized between 200000 and 300000 is accurate? And do you see this onboarding more traditional collectors into digital? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quickly just uh, jump back to Adrian's point that I'm gonna I'm gonna mention. So Adrian, you were, you were saying basically, is it okay for someone who's not an artist to mint pretending to be an artist? Basically, right? You're saying like basically exactly like is can an artist whoever made that for it to feel authentic? They have to mint it, that, right? That, or am I wrong? Sort of. That? Yeah, that's that's sort of the biggest reason why I think I really wanted to talk about this is because the one of the main pillars of this whole idea of like the oh my god like nfts are the future is really the provenance is sort of it's pitched as 90 it's 90 percent of the pitch right is provenance right and christie's is coming in and saying fyi this person is a is a digital pioneer because we said so right like they are they are your god worship this person even though i love ethereum by the way i'm just saying that's sort of the pitch right and um, here's some work. They're real because we said they're real, even though we don't have an authentication department anymore. Right. And, you know, go with God. This is it. Right. And so my issue isn't whether or not we should, I should come out or anyone else should come out and say, oh, these are fake. The issue is that this should be challenged. Like people should be talking exactly. about it. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. I, I'm sorry about that. But exactly, because otherwise, like, I mean, it's it reminds me of those people that are, you know, doing the 300 editions of the Mona Lisa as NFTs. I mean, it gets ridiculous. And what about these people who don't know too much about this stuff? And you have some, you know, trad art collector comes on the scene, wants some digital work. And is there he is buying or she is buying, you know, digital Mona Lisa's and thinking they're worth something like that. So there needs to be, I, I think exactly what you're saying here. I'm just vehemently agreeing with you. Like there needs to be some sort of cultural rec recognition on part of the, on the part of the culture that really the only, the only person that can mint it is the artist or, you know, some close variation of that, unless they, for whatever reason, aren't able to uh, physically and they have a helper, okay, and they sign off on it, like a Warhol assistant making a Warhol, fine, you know, but other than that, uh, this is, it's, uh, so again, and then you go, well, why? And it's like, who, you know, it's like, seems to be all about money. Sorry to interrupt you, Xerox. I don't know if you had anything to add. No, I'm just going to say that the, the, the biggest issue is there's an inherent conflict of interest when the organization that is, you know, authenticating something is the benefactor. So like, you know what I mean? Like they, they are the ones that potentially stand to receive the money. If there should be an ethical issue here of like, well, you know, do we want the, them of all people to like, they, they have everything to gain. Right. Um, and then just quickly, just because I, I got to pay, pay some for, for some gas I just pumped. And this person's like giving me, like I'm not, not not going anywhere. I just gotta quickly go and pay for this and come back <laughs> in my car. But um, uh, anyway, so what? Uh, Trop shot, I believe, is his name is. 
Um, you know, I said Andy Warhol's, um, you know, auction sold for 3.38 million, right? Um, the five lots. Um, within a comparable period of time, within the same period of time, there was another Andy Warhol auction of, a, of hard disks. And I believe and it actually included an original Amiga computer that was used on stage, if I'm not mistaken, that's sold at uh, Bonhams, right? And it was nine pieces of art. So, like, there's no difference right now. One is minted and one is not minted. So, the Bonhams sold nine pieces of art, original hard disks, right? $250,000. So, like, right, because that seems like it would. That seems like it would be worth more because that's like the, if anything, right? Is, is that what you're saying? Well, that's, that's sort of where we're lying on here now is like, well, this whole idea of Christie's ushering in a whole new era of authentication, which if, again, if you read the outline article today, that's what it mentions, right? Is the worst part of all this is like one is minted. One is not minted. One is more authentic. One is less authentic. One was like upscaled. One wasn't. One was the original. One was five lots. The other one was nine items. And one sold for more than 10x the other. Right? And so that's sort of the ushering of new era is like somehow can, can NFTs impart more value? And the question I have is, is it because the collector is less knowledgeable? Because like I think so. Because I yeah. mean, are you gonna if you have all that money, like, are you gonna buy the Mona Lisa, you know, NFT? It's like no, you know, like uh, so. Yeah, Sabato, do you have anything to add to this? Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of in in agreement with with Xerox. I think like we're definitely at an at a point where it's like we're having authorship by um, by proxy through just like foundations and and kind of like I don't know like 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 uh, institutions and organizations that are beyond like the artist um, and I think it's it's something that's that's worth questioning um, I think with regard to what Topshot asked. Um, the Chris, like the, the auction houses, do have a, a system for valuation um, that they rely on. I feel like it's it's always a little bit speculative and it's a little bit real. Um, I feel with works like this, it's you know you get a mix, mix mix of both. As to whether they can actually onboard new collectors onto NFTs, I'm I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, I feel that with these large purchases, usually they like they don't tend to spill over into other sort of nft art scenes like these are very like isolated sort of um transactions but so is this yeah i think top shot has another question too so yeah go for it top shot i was just gonna ask so is it safe to call this a tribute because i heard you guys talking about the artist who's in jail young thug and he released an album but that's more on his approval and he's alive so he could give that approval whereas this artist is no longer alive and it doesn't seem like they're the ones pushing to have this sold yeah, you know that's a, that's a good question. Um, there, when the Warhol auction came out, there was a thread by one of the guys who worked with the Carnegie Mellon Computer Lab and actually did the restoration of the Warhols. And someone asked them, "It's like, would this be a forgery if you know you sell an upscaled Warhol Amiga drawing?" And his response was like, "No, it's not a forgery because the foundation, the people who own the estate." Like they wanted this, they asked for high resolution images for prints and for whatever use. Um, and this should be considered an exhibition copy, which is like with 
contemporary art is is a you know it's one of those things that keeps popping up like not just with digital art but with like conceptual art like if an artist has an installation that's made with like you know like like car parts like to actually you know like moving that like one work physically is really complicated like if you have a sculpture made out of like used cars so what happens is is that you know the artist or the, whoever owns the the artwork will commission an exhibition copy for them to make a whole new sculpture made out of car parts um and the, and the second one would be considered an exhibition copy and not the original so i think we're definitely in that um in terms of just like the semantics of it we're in that level where we can say that you know, is the Keith Haring that you're buying from Christie's, is it the original Keith Haring drawing? No, it's not. But is it an approved exhibition copy? Yes, because the foundation and Christie's says it is. So, And I think I can live with that, right? Like, I, I think that's a pretty important distinction. If you're going to say, okay, uh, this is not a quote-unquote Keith Haring this is a, you know, foundation working with whomever else, New York Public Library or whomever, and, you know, collaboration, and that this is good enough to show and that we approve this. I don't see anything wrong with that in a sense, right? And the problem is, is if you're going to say, hey, I now I own a Keith Haring if I buy that. And it's like, well, you own an exhibition copy. You don't have, like, again, he, he didn't sign off on this. And I think that's kind of the key thing. Because the problem is is if you don't put a limit on there, then every the, almost like the whole legitimacy of this whole idea of provenance and, auth and you know, whoever mints it and everything, it almost the whole NFT collecting thing goes out the window, does it not? Yeah, I would say that that's a, definitely a risk. But it's also something that I think is a risk in the traditional art world, too. I think it's just that, like, the, you know, kind of like the economy of of it has shifted a little bit um in terms of like forgery it's like in traditional art like if you have a forged work that directly threatens like the rarity and the value of you know the original item um i think with digital now we you know you, we have like a more of a question of just like sanction and how do you you know differentiate between what is sanctioned work and what is unsanctioned uh, and this kind of idea of like, well, can you forge a Keith Haring? Like you can, and you know, it, it doesn't affect the work the way it would have, you know, if I like drew one physically and tried to have it authenticated or like, you know, had like a fake Keith Haring mural somewhere. Um, and that whole, and that, and that, that kind of difference like is, is what drew me to, to sort of like, just kind of try it, you know, like why not just draw Keith Haring? Like it, it, they're relatively easy to draw. And it's like, Honestly, it's a good exercise. I recommend anyone to like, if you haven't ever tried to forge an artwork, definitely try to do it because it's a great way to learn about an artist, like learn about their process and like kind of understand their genius. Like, you know, just kind of doing, it was a simple drawing by Keith Haring, but you get like, you know, how, how like, um, what's the word, how deliberate every, every one of his lines are and like, it was a cool experience. So yeah. um. <laughs> tell us a little bit more about making it. So because uh, what I've seen of the, you know, quote unquote, original Keith Haring work, I've seen only kind of still versions. So I assume you saw a moving version. Like, did you try and get it pixel for pixel? Well, I, I free drew it. Like, I didn't want to trace it over or, you know, just copy it. Because that's like another thing with digital art. Like, if you really want to copy something, 
you don't have to like redraw it right you can just like right control, right, right. right click save um so it was already i feel it was already kind of like performative a performative act just to try to like draw it freehand um and i took pictures of myself sort of um you know kind of like trying to draw it and i think if you look directly at my work and keith herring's there there'll be obvious difference in the lines and there's a few lines which i think i got perfectly but a lot of them are, are very different um than the original um i would say like yeah there none of like the original none of the originals were animated and i think when i saw mm. the work and i saw the gradient my first thought was like this has to be a color cycle in deluxe paint i thought like, so too so yeah so like, those aren't <laughs> animated interesting <laughs> So I added the animation and that's kind of like, you know, obviously like I'm not a very good forger because Keith Haring didn't animate his drawings. Um, but I, you know, that that's guess where, where I didn't care anymore. I think it, it's like, I wanted to also make it my own at that point. Like I was like, you know, leave, leave the little touch of the artist in the forgery. So quick, quick question just on the technical side of it. I mean, you've used deluxe paint for a while. So for you to make a gradient like that and make it kind of approximate, uh, you know how to do that. And you can even make it cycle and everything because you've used deluxe paint quite a bit now. Uh, how long do you think it would take to, you know, do Keith Herring's gradient to know how to do that right? Like, do you think you could do it pretty easily? Like for me, I get the sense that might take a few sessions if you're just kind of learning no. brand new software like that. If you're, I think if you're going from scratch, that will definitely take a few sessions. Um, once you get used to kind of like using Deluxe Paint or just an Amiga computer or an Amiga mouse and drawing with that, it took me like about, I would say maybe 90 minutes to draw that. Um, and of course, I'm not using the same program. Um, Keith Haring used Graphic Craft which I think later became pro paint. It's the, yeah, it's the, the other, way it's the other way around, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's the other way around. I, I, I got it. I, I yeah. got a crack version and I, I started checking to see if the colors schemes matched and, you know, I went a little too deep, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, they, they have, it has a cycle function um, and, and with ranges and repetition and, and cycles and all that stuff, just, just like um, deluxe paint but much more minimal, Okay. much more minimal with like, I would say that it's a much, much more crude program to use than deluxe. But um, yeah, it's like, it was tough for me to try and draw anything in there, like much easier in deluxe paint. And uh, the one thing I was really surprised about and so a little bit happy about is that the, the, the default colors matched. So like there was, there was some confirmation. Same, that it could same with deluxe paint. That's what I thought was funny. Like, not all the default colors. Like, the cyans didn't match. And I forget. There was, like, a green I had to switch. But, yeah, the the, the gradient itself, the reds and oranges, was really easy to kind of, like, just do because it was all kind of, like, default color palettes. Right. Which I think is interesting, right? You really tell, like, how comfortable Keith, Keith was while making these drawings or, you know, or if someone else, you know, was doing it in, in an act of, like, replicating his work, like... And from your research on Keith Haring and the digital work he was doing, like how much time do you think he was actually spending on on his uh, digital art? Like, do you get the sense, sense it was just like a few sessions here and there, or I think did he it, actually well, take I it pretty he, seriously? I think he took this. He took it as seriously as an artist could take it in the eighties. Um, like he made an album cover in nineteen eighty six 
that was done on a computer. And I think if you look at that album cover, I forget, it's called the Peach Boys, like P-E-E-C-H. Um, if you look at that work, you can really see like the difference between the, the lines on the digital versus, you know, his lines when he's like drawing or painting and in, in, on, on a physical medium, just because it's so shaky and it's so like, yeah, you know, it's it's not that bold, beautiful line he has. It's very different. It's a little shakier and kind of mousy. Exactly. You see the little pixelations. Um, I'm looking at I it now. Like, yeah. And, it, and it's interesting, too, because if you read his journals, I think a lot of people quote something he said in 1978 where he's like talking about how he's against the machine aesthetic and you have to fight against the computer aesthetic. But if you, you know, by the time the 80s roll around, he was totally down with it. Like he talks about the the computer, like, or just computer graphics totally changing the nature of the image and how that interests him and how interesting it is to draw with a mouse versus a pen. Um, he was very into the technology, but at the time, like you just, you know, it's not like today where we live on a computer, like you just didn't use it that often. Right. It was kind of like a fancy tool that you would bust out. That was probably more complicated than worth compared to just like taking a pen and drawing something. Um, I think just like people's habits back then of using computer all the time, making art wasn't what it is now where we like live and breathe it. So I think, I think he was into it. I think he was into digital art. Um, if he were alive today, would he mint an NFT? I think he would. Um, would he mint those works? Like it's likely he would too. Like, you know, he wasn't against sort of like commercializing his art. Um, what I also the, like, what I also like about what you did is somehow you kind of got the exact like weird kind of line at like three quarters the way down of the gradient where it almost gets kind of like <laughs> uh, cut off a little bit and it starts again. Do you know what I'm talking? Of course, you know what I'm. Talking yeah, about. I, I do. I did that on purpose because I was like, I want to try to copy some of his gestures. You did pretty good. I mean, and yeah. the colors are identical, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> Like, yeah, you did a very good job of... And no, thank you. It, it almost seems like maybe just this, the TV itself is maybe where you get the like the shape of the TV, where you have more interpretation, shall we say. Uh, it's pretty hilarious. Great commentary here, Sabato. Yeah, the, sh the TV was the hardest part to draw, honestly. Like, the figure, I think just because of, like, the... I was doing it with a mouse by hand, so doing, like, a kind of, like, copying those lines without tracing is really hard. Um... But, but yeah, you know, I, I minted in the drawing exercises because I saw like, you know, like if you're getting good at drawing or painting or making art at some point, you're going to have to try a forgery, you know, that's like the exercise. So that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's my approach to it. Um, I think it was really awesome that, you know, kind of me and Xerox, like we both had the same idea at the same time we were talking about it and we we're like, dude, we got to join forces. <laughs> Um, because he's taken like a very like historical look at just like the provenance and at the nature of the provenance. Like, and I think these are important questions. Like can a foundation posthumously author a work the way that, you know, the Warhol foundation does and, the, and many foundations do like, it's not just Keith Haring. It's, you know, and it's not just in visual art. It's in a lot of kinds of, you know, even like, what is it? Harper Lee had a book came out recently, like, you know, if you look at soccer, like the Brazilian national team and Pelé soccer counts are all under dispute about what's official and what's not. I think this is such like a such a topic for, you know, just culture and art in our age. And collecting, like right? Yeah, and collecting. It's, it's like, like the it's kind of like the case study right now, I think, at least from what I've seen 
on this topic of provenance and what it means in the NFT space because like every aspect of it like the artist has passed away like the discs were found after he died various verification going on with the foundation and then and then finally with the media saying that this is the new era of of provenance it's like these foundations basically minting works like it's it's definitely like a, a kind of a perfect case study on sort of you know to look at in, in a rabbit hole um with the licensing stuff that I talked about with like, you know, with the NFT and the rights, for example, also being in it, the, the royalties that are in perpetuity, not to Keith Haring, but to the foundation. I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about really is like these foundations. I think, uh, Adrian, you mentioned like, oh, they're going to like someone's going to go and buy themselves a nice house. So like it's it's weird because, you know, they're nonprofits. Right. And nonprofits, they can pay the staff a salary right and it could be a hefty salary and there's there's some people in nonprofits that make you know hundreds of thousands and some even that make millions depending on the scale of the nonprofit uh, and then there could be you know, like nefarious deals but like i i just you know that's just more or less hearsay but the, the bottom line i'm trying to make is like well who pays these guys and the people that donate money to the keith herring foundation are typically going to be people that own many, many, many Keith Haring's. And they have their own um, motives. And their motives would be aligned. So they, like, generally speaking, the biggest Keith Haring or Andy Warhol or Basquiat or whatever bag holders, we, we use that term in the NFT space, right, are really in on this idea because there is something in it to them. Like, it benefits... I believe it benefits, I could be wrong to say this, but I believe it benefits benefits Basquiat um, painting owners to have Tiffany's, you know, do a Basquiat thing. Or, you know what I mean? Like, it, they're keeping the name so, of the totally. relevant. It's in the news. It's uh, the new digital thing. He was a pixel pioneer. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, here you go. Keith Haring now is, a, is a, you know, founder of digital art. That is something that I'm sure Keith Haring, you know, like collectors that own millions of dollars of the work are going to love. They're like, oh, really? That's amazing. Let's let's do that, right? So, you know, there there is a whole system in place. And I think, like, from my perspective, and Sabato, you know, you mentioned technique. I usually approach, like, any technique that I want to, like, take on by emulating an artist and copying an artist. And, like, my name is Xerox, for God's sakes, right? But um, in this case, a lot of it had to do with reverse engineering to figure out if it's real. So like, you know, downloading the original program, running the emulators. I even threw it on a CRT TV and uh, a CRT screen and like the PDF that I made has all this, but like to see how that image is going to translate to, you know, the, let's call it the analog domain and, 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 you know, how that would look. And one thing that struck me is that we didn't talk about yet at all is like, those gradients that you see in the digital on the digital side. So if you look again at, at that untitled one, right, and you see Sabato's got his in his cycle as well. If you throw that in, in on a CRT, you get a lot of blending that happens, especially between hmm. like near colors. So the red and the orange, and even the yellow, like those are going to blend together to produce one sort of mass of colors. And especially on an Amiga, which is an older monitor, you're not going to see this crisp red, this crisp orange, and this yellow. Like, you don't get any of that. You get one fuzz of, of color, and it's it's almost like one color. And you get, like, an almost like, um, almost like a texturized 
look, especially with the grid, which again imparts more texture, right? All of the edges, the hard edges and those crisp squares that are associated with pixels, which again is ironic because he's a pixel pioneer, but like pixels as we know them today really didn't really, you, people weren't seeing them at that time period. Through a CRT screen, you saw a rounded image that was blurred by, by, by that light. Um, so there's a, there's like, there's technical issues here that are like, again, if, if you just, if, if someone went through the trouble and obviously no one is cause no one's a psychopath. Right. Except for me, but, but, and Sabato. but like that's present why, company, like, except that's why we found each other in this universe. Right. Yes, exactly. And like, exactly. you know, I, I spoke to other artists like, uh, Kristen Roos, for example, like asked them some questions about, you know, these programs and like, is, we're really lucky in this, in this time frame right now where like someone like me, I could, I could see this, you know, work, um, released on, you know, September 5th. And then by whatever today's date is, I could have such a massive amount of information on, like to a ridiculous degree of information that I honestly think that someone, it would take them like maybe a year and a half, two years in, in maybe like the 90s or whatever, maybe longer, if at all, to gain all this insight because of, of not just the internet, but also people that happen to have like super incredible knowledge on everything. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this is like basically a symptom of this new age. If anything, we might have more tools to kind of criticize this now than we did before. Because if if somebody dropped a fake in like the 90s and it's like a physical world thing, I'm going to walk by it and think it's real. I'm, I'm not that. What am I going to do? Go get a card, go to the public library, take out 50 volumes of something, read every single page because you can't search anything for terms. Right. You have no one to talk to to try and determine if something is real. So like, you know, we're at a time period where we can share this information and yeah, I hope I hope people read the PDF. I'm, I'm probably not gonna sell it. I'm either gonna mint it as a one and just not sell it, or I'm just gonna gift it to people. So if you're interested, you're more than welcome to hit me up. Um, it, feel free to post a link as well as Xerox on this uh, space. Yeah, I haven't minted it that. I gotta work on it all night tonight too. It's like a, okay. it's, like, it's a mission, but yeah. So, so it's, it's a fascinating this... topic. Just about this new era. So is like, cause I never saw that. So, and I mean, speaking of, you know, motives and like people with were conflicts of interest. So is Christie's now saying there's a new era because obviously they're going to profit out of this too. And it's almost like open the barn doors and all the horses run out. Now, everybody go to your estates and let's see what we can dig up here. Well, I, I mean, I've seen it. I, I've, I've read maybe one too many articles about this now, but like, I, there's more than one instance where it wasn't Christie's, but other, you know, other some people people yeah. saying comments. Yeah, yeah. Other yeah, other writers are saying that this is a new era of you know authentication is usually the word that they use, not provenance. But there, the mm -hmm. one thing that all of these things had in common is not a single one questioned the provenance which to me was a little bit alarming. So like, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that this is a fake at all. And I think that there's a very high likelihood that Keith Haring made these. And my personal opinion is that he made them just like as experiments and he never meant to release them for, and, and the reason why I thought that again is that there's a gradient in, in that same piece, like the lines kind of overlap and they, they, they cross each other. And again, this isn't sort of the level of stuff that 
you would normally do that, that I've seen. It's not as crisp. So, but you know, it doesn't matter. He, I, I do believe there's a lot, there's a reasonable chance that he can make them. But like, I still question the provenance even to this day, because I should. Because well, the, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but there's the, you know, the 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 fact that it was transferred, right? So if Keith Haring made these drawings, they were transferred to a Mac. So what we do know is that at some point there was like a conversion process. And so I think it's fair to ask, like when, you know, those original Amiga files that Keith supposedly made were converted to a Mac PCT file, like was anything edited? Was anything cropped? Like what was that process? And that is kind of just like, you know, we don't know. There is no way of knowing possibly. Um, yeah, like Leary. So sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Leary is dead, right? Timothy Leary, and you know, like he was a big kind of cybernetics guy. I think in the late '80s, before he died, he was sort of like, uh, you know, almost like pre-internet. I think, uh, like in the '80s there, or like as it was happening. So it's not crazy that he would have ended up with some copies like this. You know, being in those rarefied circles in the kind of elite of the counterculture. It's not crazy that someone goes, send him over to Leary. Uh, he's the cybernetics guy now. No, I don't think so at all. Um, especially because he was, you know, he was, he had that project and he sent Amigas to 10 other, to 10 artists, including Keith Haring being one of them. Oh, really? So, I, I didn't know that. So, yeah. So I think we like one of the things I, I, he wanted for his game was photographs by Helmut Newton. And I'm a big Helmut Newton fan, so I'm like, well, we got to forge those next. Um, <laughs> AI. <laughs> Put it in the AI series. Yeah. <laughs> got to find out. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, I, this will open that kind of, that kind of like door. I think they're for estates and people trying to like, kind of like reclaim and recover, you know, digital drafts, early digital works by artists. Um, I think it's interesting also that, like, you know, like, we talk about Warhol and Keith Haring, but, the, you know, there was computer art at the time. They, it wasn't, like, a vacuum. You know, like, we were, you know, like, a, one of the groups I was in with Xerox, we were looking at, like, the Seagraph interviews from 1982, 1981. And, you know, they had 30 computer artists, like, all showing, all giving interviews. And we imagine that to them, like the idea that suddenly Warhol will make a commercial with an Amiga, like they probably roll their eyes at it because to them, they're the pioneers. They're the ones actually working day in and day out, making art and creating like the, the digital art that we know today. Um, I think what I think one of the reasons why we all kind of like jump on these moments is that because even though we love Warhol, and we love Keith Haring, we don't really consider them progenitors for our medium. Right. Like, I never really thought of, like, Keith Haring as a pixel artist. Like, I, I used to, you know, I, drawing and doodling was, like, my first artwork that I, art form that I ever, like, explored and loved. And, you know, when I first saw Keith Haring in high school, like, it's, you know, you obviously love it. And you obviously, like, admire it because it's, like, these are simple drawings that became famous just by virtue of, like, their economy and the genius of their lines. And it's inspiring. Like, as a kid, you're like, damn, I want to, like, get to that where, you know, you're definitely inspired by it, but I never thought of it as a digital art form, you know? And I think now where you have this kind of revisionism, yes, where it's like, look at Warhol, look at Keith Haring, these titans of 80s art, you know, there are, there are you know, they invented digital art too. I think we want to question that, right? Because our references and our, you know, the people we admire and the people we learned from aren't, wasn't Keith Haring and Warhol, it was, you know, those other artists that don't get the due. 
that they get. Yeah, beautifully put. And Nintendo and video games, I mean, for a lot of people out there. So, yeah. Totally video games. Right. And it's totally really, video games. And, and it's so interesting what Xerox was saying about uh, the CRT screen. Because, you know, if that's the case, and I don't see why it wouldn't be, like, if it does smooth out these gradients, because it's almost like these works are made for people that kind of like pixel art and that appreciate the medium. But I think like back then, it's really hard to imagine that satisfaction with the pixel. Like I think back then it was seen as, as someone who who was lived in the nineties and even the eighties, uh, it was kind of seen as errors, like that this is very rudimentary. This isn't something to celebrate this kind of pixelation whereas these works you know like if i look at the one that uh sabato you uh forged so to speak like it seems like it's kind of celebrating the pixels a lot and it's because it, it makes them look totally visionary right i mean that's part of the maybe the issue that we're seeing but maybe because it looks like oh they figured figured out pixel art before you know in the 80s and, and it's it seems like a little perhaps a little a bridge too far as I like. Yeah, it's, that's that revisionism, I feel, because it's like, you know, as Xerox said, the technology for seeing pixel art in the 80s and 90s, like, really hid the pixel. Like, you were seeing drawings, right? And you understood them as drawings, and the tendency in graphics was to kind of, like, hide the pixel, make everything smoother. Um, but now, you know, the aesthetic is totally flipped. We want the crunchiness of the pixels. We want the kind of, like, the low poly look from PlayStation one and all that era, we're bringing back like the artifacts. Um, but it's interesting. You mentioned that because for the Warhol um, auction, when Carnegie Mellon um, kind of like they, they did a, an exhibition of those works that they recovered from Warhol's Amigas. And they had the question, like, how do we show these works? Because, you know, the pixel that we see now is very different than what was seen in the eighties and nineties. And, their solution was that they would post the, the files on a, on a modern computer, but they would show them on an Amiga monitor to kind of preserve that fuzziness and preserve that, like, original viewing. You know, like, you're seeing it as you're meant to in the 80s and 90s when it was created. Um, so I think there is, like, a way to, like, show these works that is, like, historically sensitive. And also kind of like, you know, brings these questions about the way we see them now and the way they were seen before was so different. You know, how does that change the nature of the artwork? I think these are just like great questions to ask. And the, Yeah, I mean, what, one thing I want to, to say is that like if, if the monitor at the time was, you know, Keith Haring's canvas or Andy Warhol's canvas, that was what they were seeing also when they were creating the works. So these are just totally different canvases, essentially, than, than what they originally worked on. So it, it, it really is between the ask in this case, between the aspect ratio being basically the stored aspect ratio as opposed to displayed. So again, the stretching is, I think it's a really big item. So like, if you really want to see these pieces, save them, go into Photoshop and increase the vertical scale by 20%. So 120, and you'll get very close to the Amiga, which is the four, three aspect. And then you have to kind of throw it into the Amiga CRT specifically because the CRTs are, are different from one another in terms of the number of scan lines, et cetera. But, I mean, you you originally might think, okay, well, that's such an extreme thing to do. But, again, like, that image is the one that was produced originally, 
that that was the one that was created so it's a very different thing it's it's almost like i don't know it's almost like um it, it, the difference to me is is kind of like i don't know taking something like a, a live music session for example right and it was recorded on like a neumann like an incredible mic through an incredible preamp right and then taking that and then just throwing it through i don't know like like just con compressing it or throwing it into something and just removing all of the goddamn air in the room and sucking the life out of the recording and like like it, it, it not to say that it's worse or better in that way but it's just completely different you end up with something very different so like if you're if you're listening you know to to something like that you know in a sound room or whether you're listening to it on your headphones like the the the, the medium that you're using to access that information is going to have a pretty big effect on on it or if you're if you're painting a painting and then you take a picture of the painting and now you have a picture of the painting you're not going to get the texture that you got on the original painting and in this case the texture is really drastically different right on a crt and so is the the proportions of the pieces so those are things that like are an issue but those aren't chrissy's issues because the reason why they did this this time around is because of the amount of backlash that they got off the the warhol post so like there's a post out there with I don't know, like 13, 1400 likes right now of one of the people that helped, um, you know, restore the original Warhol pictures that went to auction and sold for Christie's. Like he was basically saying these aren't authentic. The guy that actually restored them because the issue was that, you know, he didn't want them to be rescaled as Sabato said, but also for the aspect to change. In this case, they just kept the aspect ratio to the the, what was on the disc and they're basically saying hey, listen if you really want to see this thing on the commodore computer go buy one figure out how to use one load it up and just put it in your house because we don't want anything to do with this shit it you know and i'm looking at the warhol works too and you know there is an additional complicator where he signs them right so i mean that's that's a whole other level because it's like oh well it's a signed work maybe it is okay <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think he made a few works that were just his signature too, like on the Amiga. Yeah, you know he was great. Yeah. I'm looking at the banana one. Those are beautiful, beautiful works. And again, it does bring up this whole issue of were they meant to look like this, or was this you know the display matters? And I think it's super interesting what you're mentioning, Sabato, about how I think you said Carnegie Mellon, uh, how they decided to show both really like here's the mm -hmm. original to me that seems like the uh the legitimate thing to do but it's like but also but look at how cool these raw files look and look at how well they kind of work in today's world uh like the, it speaks directly immediately to our today's pixel art or today's digital art absolutely well so we are beginning to wrap up Xerox. Any, did we miss anything? I mean, you've done so much research on this. I uh, am worried we've missed something. Have we covered most of our bases here? Is there something else that we haven't mentioned that we should mention in regard to this? No, I, I feel like we covered, I think, oh, we, I think we covered everything. I mean, like, it's funny. Cause like, like the final thought, like, uh, the end of Ninja Turtles, like Skinner or whatever his name was, would like give the turtles like a final thought. 
Like I, I, I think I think we pretty much covered Splinter. I'm Splinter. Splinter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Shredder. <laughs> the Shredder. Sabato's the Shredder. <laughs> I think we covered it all. But yeah, I, 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 I love seeing like so many, uh, you know, familiar faces in the audience, and and uh, I hope, yeah, I hope, I hope the auction goes well. I, I just hope more people. Uh, more people look into this whole issue because like, you know, how, how badly do we want like all these, like, you know, dead artists showing up and, and claiming whatever, you know, the estates claiming whatever well, they want and selling at crazy prices and like everyone else kind of bowing down to the, I guess the, the every word that the auction houses, you know, put out all the media likes to run whatever it is that they say, just to some extent, like, I think the artist community needs to sort of lay out, what they what they think to some extent you know i don't yeah, cuz i i'm not buying it like i like I, like i think they're beautiful works i think it's fun i think you can say yeah this is what they did but as far as like nfts like i totally don't buy that this is like legitimate and do, do, do you i guess maybe that's my final question for you guys like do do you find do you think it's legitimate to sell these as nfts and to you know and to say these are you know original Warhols and herrings? I'm a bit iffy on that. I think if I had the money to collect original Warhols and herrings, I might not go for the digital works. Um, and because of, because of the provenance, because I think you would love to have the digital works if you felt like, oh yeah, they were like, they were kind of the real deal, I would imagine. Well, I think it's also, it wasn't, it wasn't their main thing. Like, right, right, right. I don't know. Like they're, they're definitely beautiful works. I'm looking at the banana. I've never seen this by Warhol. It's brilliant. I mean, yeah, Warhols are gorgeous. Like the fills he uses. Yeah, like magic wand. Um, yeah, good old magic wand. Yeah, like beautiful. And just how he's right. He he makes it look so easy. Even this flower here. Uh, I highly recommend everybody look at that on Artnet. So flower's gorgeous. Yeah, uh, Xerox. Are you buying it? I I don't buy the pitch. NFT. I I don't buy the pitch at all. So like from from Pixel Pioneer to you know uh the story of how it all started and i don't buy it because every aspect of it is verifiably false right but as far as keith herring being a great artist i've always thought that and and seeing these works like i really hope that they're real because like they're nice you know and uh i i i like them the, the problem is that i have is that like mentally like i'd like to be sure only because introducing works that aren't real and attributing to the artist in this case like with like the gradient for example you would be skewing and distorting you know potentially the view of what the artist was and what they created and that's the problem i have like i don't have the problem with anyone the foundation making money or i i could care less people that spend you know 3.38 million dollars on andy warhols right they're interested in spending 3.38 million dollars on andy warhols like that's what they want Right. So they're not in the market to buy, I don't know, um, other stuff that's like from smaller independent artists. Like to me, they're they're very separate markets. None of that really bothers me. But the idea of like a bunch of people speaking for an artist post ominously, and I think you touched on this, uh, Adrian, is just very unusual. Like we were talking about like Basquiat or like so do, do his like grandchildren or whatever is, is like is. Um, nephews or whoever is like remaining like are they like sitting at home being like oh I wonder what like you know granddad or like uncle is gonna, is gonna drop next like what's gonna drop next week like yeah. you, said, you know what I mean like 
but he's still dropping like hits, right? Like with like these like quote unquote collaborations with these brand bands, right? So it's just like to some extent it's it's just unnecessarily false. And I think like in this instance, like I love what I'm seeing. I don't I just the one thing that I didn't like is like I don't think it's necessary to call Keith Haring a pixel pioneer. And I think the works would have sold just as well without it and being called called that. So like that extra sort of lathering and the extra sort of massaging of the image is is just not for me, right? So, you know, that's sort of the, that's just me, right? I mean, I, it is for a lot of people because, you know, you only have so many words that people are willing to read and you want to throw Steve Jobs in there and Andy Warhol and, and Sean Lennon and Pixel Pioneer. You want to make sure you stuff it really nicely, you know? But um, personally, I think that there should be a higher standard than that. I, I think you you nailed it, Xerox. It's the story. It's not the images. The images are beautiful and great. And, you know, there's all sorts of weird issues with maybe displays and how they turn out. But it's the story. It's really the, the narrative that's being pushed that accompanies them. That's sort of like, as you say, really, you know, especially from Christie's, uh, there should be a higher standard than this. Yeah, I, I think one thing that it touches on is, and I... And I think it's something that, you know, is, that we as artists are trying to, like, elucidate and clear up more. It's just, like, the, the story of the process of the work. Because, I mean, if you look historically, a lot of, you know, artists had workshops with, you know, workers and employees and apprentices. And they produced work in kind of, like, you know, sort of maybe not a corporate, but maybe a guild setting or a workshop setting. Um, like, you know, you, I think that was common in the Renaissance and like, if you look at like the Japanese woodcuts from Hukasai, these are all like produced by companies. Like there was a guy in charge, but he had apprentices and workers doing things for them. And this sort of continues, you know, to this day and age, like, especially like, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Jeffrey Koontz and like Damien Hirst, like they aren't physically doing everything they do. They have people do the work for them. Right. Um, and I think like with these sorts of auctions with like, you know, Andy Warhol and Keith Haring, a lot of the work behind the scenes gets kind of erased. Um, like we don't consider that the person who, you know, whoever transferred Keith Haring's work from Amiga to PCT was part of that process of creation. It may have done something to the image to edit or to make it better or to make it compatible. Um, there are all sorts of like steps, right? Like when researching like the Warhol remasters, like, I was, like, I love that I saw Corey Archangel was, like, the artist kind of behind it who wanted to kind of recover these images. And, you know, for me, that's even more important than the Warhols, you know, existing. Because it's, like, an artist that actually inspired me, like, in my own practice, um, you know, glitching video games. Like, he was involved with this and seeing that, you know, that was partly his work, too. And he doesn't get credited as, like, being, you know, part of this whole restoration effort. At least not until you like go to the you know Carnegie Mellon website and you see him there and see his name and stuff. But it's not widely known, and people don't widely will widely think like, oh, there was these Warhol made these like Amiga drawings. But it was really like Corey Archangel who kind of like, you know, like went up to Carnegie Mellon. It's like, hey, let's let's resurrect these. Um, but I think that's why we talk about the stories. We want to kind of like bring up these facts, you know, bring up these these histories because definitely more people were involved in producing these Keith Haring pixel arts, you know? And I think, you know, as art lovers, as people who just appreciate the craft, we just want to know. So 
Totally. And it's, it's people on the blockchain that buy and sell NFTs. There's also a sense of this whole, you know, idea of authorship. And again, I see that untitled banana by Warhol minted as an NFT in 2021. And you're just like, yeah, uh, you know, that's that's sort of my take on this finally is it's like the works are great i think it's great they did everything it's really the minting uh where i start to go you know and as you say maybe it's just a matter of semantics where you just call it an exhibition copy and then let it sit as that and then people can pay whatever they want and maybe it doesn't matter uh but yeah it brings up a lot of interesting questions well thank you both that was absolutely fascinating and i had no idea just how complicated this story was and really that much of it was happening i just saw the news story the other day i didn't realize this was going on since november so thank you both uh for coming and thank you everybody for showing up that was fascinating and until next time take care bye everyone cheers